I'm a little bit confused about the- <laughs> I'm a little bit confused about how they robbed six banks in a week by driving a truck through the front. You're asking um, too many questions. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're thinking too much here. Stop it. You should be asking more questions about the absurd society we live in in real life. That's right, Gabe. Gabe <laughs> listen to Gabe. What Gabe just says that's what it is. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right. All right, guys. Um, welcome to a new episode of the Redwood Podcast. I'm Gabo Mercia, and I'm joined with John Flores. Hey. <laughs> and David Salad. <laughs> What's up? So we're going to be talking about In Time today, a 2011 film about a dystopic future where we've figured out how to turn off the aging gene. So people are just 25 forever unless they allow this timer on their wrist to run down to to zero and that time that they have on their wrist is what in this society they use as money so if they want lunch they have to take 10 minutes off their timer to pay for lunch and this is the setting in which we meet will salas the main character of the film who is a working class guy just trying to, you know, live day to day. He basically almost dies uh, all the time in the way this this society is set up. And yeah, let's maybe just start talking about it from there without getting into all that transpires from that point. So what did you think, John? What was your impression of this film that definitely deals with some important political ideas? While it is a cheesy film, what I really like about the film, despite its corniness is that it's dealing with one of the central characteristics of capitalism, actually. It's dealing with the money subsistence connection. And so we know that the vast majority of people who live in a capitalist society have to go out and sell their labor power to somebody in order to obtain money and then go and obtain their subsistence. In this fictional film, what's happened is time has replaced money, but they've upped the ante While in our current way of life, you need money in order to subsist, in this film, you need time in order to exist, that is in order to live. When you run out of time, you can't go and sleep on your friend's couch or borrow some time from somebody, you're dead. And so the question is, well, how do you make sure that you have time on your imprinted time clock? Well, you do the same things that we have to do in our capitalist society if you don't have money. You have to go and sell your labor power. You have to go and work for someone in order to be paid in time. Some people then start engaging in the illicit economy in order to obtain time. And the rich who have the ownership of the corporations, the factories, and the land, well, they use their property connections to ensure that they have a near unlimited supply of time. And what we see here is a film that's raising questions about whether or not that money subsistence nexus is just. And it's doing it through this hokey concept of time, but it's asking us, should people who do not have quote unquote time, i.e. money, should they die? (laughs) Should they die? Should they live miserably? Should they just expire? And should we just step over them as they lay on the streets of our cities, as we make our way to our factory to make sure that we don't run out of time? And so I think the film's playing with some interesting themes, even though it does so in all sorts of limited ways. (laughs) (laughs) I got a kick out of watching this movie. I think it was very bad, but it definitely had some really interesting 
themes, you know, it gives us a lot to talk about. I just wonder how much of that was intended. You said time is money. They made sure that we knew that in the movie. I just couldn't quite handle all the the clock and time jokes were, were a little too much for me. But I, I think the way that we talk as Marxists about the means of subsistence and the, you know, the concept of free labor, that people are free to do exactly one thing, which is to sell their labor power. What we really, what we know is that that labor power is really embodied in time. And so it adds a sharpness to the discussion that I think might be absent in sort of the abstracted idea of subsistence. Because in this, if you have an overdraft, you're gone. There's no overdraft. There is no overdraft. (laughs) That's what I I mean. That, wait, that might, that might be a pos- I hate overdraft. Fees. This might be a positive <laughs> of this uh, society. You just they just do not exist. Never again. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, I mean, he he describes living day to day, essentially like living paycheck to paycheck, and I think that is a pretty powerful way of presenting that concept. I think it highlights just how miserable and stressful that life is. Yep. When you have the counter on your forearm, whether that's real or imagined, it is with you always. Working class people can never escape that. I think that part of it is is really quite powerful. You know, it's interesting, like talking about this movie from a Marxist perspective, that you both in a way jump straight to the labor power is time, because I think that is kind of the, the natural connection you make but for me watching it what jumped out at me most in that way wasn't the time we spend working so much as when we live in a society where a small minority is allowed to live like royalty with opulence and and everything they can imagine the majority of people are subjected to suffering for most of their lives the life expectancy is going to have a great discrepancy so we see in this movie an extreme version of that where poor people live a lot shorter than rich people. But in our own world, anybody who's looked at this kind of data knows that that's the case too. I actually just saw something the other day about in the US, cancer becomes detected a lot more after 65. And that's because that's when we finally give our citizens healthcare. Just like, you know, this is like the kind of aspects of our system that make it so it does cut your, your time on this earth short if you don't have access to capital. And I think this movie is showing that, you know, it's showing the kind of the phrase that we often use when we're trying to express this injustice we're seeing is it's expensive to be poor. And the movie is showing it's dangerous to be poor. I think in a way to show how in our real world, how expensive and dangerous it is to be on that side of the class divide. I think I want to address the fantastical side of what the film portrays using time, because one of the reasons I liked it, and I say that, you know, <laughs> I, I liked it into I like certain aspects of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of the reasons I liked the ideas in this film is because I think it's easy to see this film and say to yourself, this is completely silly how the hell could you create a society to convince people to expire at age 25 and to have this genetically encoded time stamp on them? How can you do this? This seems silly. And yet many of the aspects of our capitalist way of life are just as absurd. And yet they're a part of our way of life and intellectuals, journalists, and others have naturalized them so that we take them for granted. If we think of time actually throughout human history, most humans did not labor in relation to the artificial hands of a time clock. 
And in fact, when this was introduced to workers in England and in parts of Western Europe during the Industrial Revolution, when this was introduced in the 1300s and the 1400s, they found it to be bizarre and they quickly saw how problematic it would become. And many workers understood, depending on what you were doing, they understood time in relation to natural variables. So if you're a farmer, you're working in relation to the sun. If you're a fisherman, you're working in relation to the tides. The idea that you go into a mill and somebody says to you, you're going to work from this time to this time. And here I have this clock and it's going to determine how long you work. And your work is no longer based on you producing a particular product. It's based on you working for this amount of time. So you move away from producing something immediately to time being your keeper. And when you read the histories of how this unfolded, where workers were actually dealing with what were proto-managers in these proto-factories in these mills. And guess what? These people were called timekeepers of all things. So these mills had timekeepers who would stand there and, and use time to regulate their workforce. And workers resisted. They felt that what was happening was, as I'm saying, an aberration, that it was wrong. And they saw the problems in it. And they began to say, the boss is stealing our time. The boss is shaping our time and determining our time. And they found it to be problematic. And I think we can go on with many other aspects of capitalism, like let's take private property. We treat it as natural, as it just is, it exists. But the idea that in our country, we have millions of homeless people and millions of boarded up homes. I mean, that is not only absurd, it's inhumane and brutal. And yet it's just taken as natural that some people should live in homes while some homes should remain empty and boarded up. It's bizarre. It really is. So what I liked about this film was it's taking what seems to be on its surface to be this silly concept. But yet when I look around in our society, look at how brutal yeah. and how absurd so many things are in our society. When, when you put it like that, John, it is those <laughs> things are more farcical than Justin Timberlake saying, I'm going to clean your clock <laughs> or, or one of the <laughs> many <laughs> uh, corny lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that we saw. Yeah, I, I think his job really hammered this home. You know, when you're watching him, he's going into work, he's having to look at his his time. And the whole time that he's in there working, he is losing time only to step out and be paid. And what does he find when he's holding his arm under to be paid back in time? Um, that he's getting paid less than he thought because there had been a speed up, you know, um, the, the factory owners had created a new standard that they were, had set up and, and were now enforcing, were imposing on him and all the other workers. And again, it, it makes that connection more tangible. I think when you realize that, um, that is what we all do, right. That, that right. is the nature of wage labor under capitalism is basically trading time for just a little more to survive. Now, how we make sense exactly of the way that the capitalists or elites in this society turn that time into more time or whatever, I'm I'm not entirely sure. I mean, we we do get kind of a sense that that even our our big bad in this movie is is really just kind of an underling. He's just he just reports to somebody else, you know, he he gets a call uh <laughs> from a higher up at some point. So, so maybe, maybe in that respect, uh, the, the connection to capitalism becomes a little shakier, but in terms of its impact on the workers, it, it really is a very literal version of what actually is taking place. 
And that's a great scene, Davis. And I think it's one that will probably make this film more tangible later on. I think, you know, as these contradictions in our system become clear. And one thing that I thought about when watching that was my experience working for a union and that how it showed exactly how so many people even working in our schools where where I was working in end up having to pay to work. Like it's this absurd uh, scenario where they're, you know, having to buy pencils for their kids or, I mean, I guess that's the really direct example, but often what, what would happen is teachers would get raises that would be offset by a rise in their healthcare costs. So you really weren't getting any more new money. You'd be losing money that next year. And often what what they were told in that situation would be, well, at least you have healthcare or you know how much people are paying for healthcare in the private sector. And, you know, how absurd is that? (laughs) Which I think is kind of, the, that someone should be grateful that they're having to pay money to go to work because other people essentially have it worse. And yeah, I think the, those scenes and that scene, especially where he comes out of work with less time than he went in, I think really hammered that point home. I mean, I'm sure you guys see this in at Case too. Like there is no union at Case. So that, the idea of losing money being at your job with as years pass probably isn't one that is unique to the situation I was working in, in public sector unions. And I I don't even think it has to be literally losing money, but just the fact that it ultimately is a system designed to prevent you from accumulating wealth because you're really only getting paid basically enough to reproduce your labor, right? Like enough to continue working. They don't want to give these people tons of time, because imagine what they might do with tons of time. In the same way that working class people getting increased wages suddenly become much less interested in spending their entire lives working uh, to make other people money. In this, if if they are given tons of time, they probably aren't going to spend all of that time sitting in a factory doing whatever it is they're doing or, you know, producing these goods. They can find better ways to spend that time. Yeah. So another thing that I thought this movie did well was how it showed how society deals with crime and how it, how it thinks of crime, because ultimately, you know, we tend to think of criminality in terms of morals, right? Like it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to hurt others. And often that's not the (laughs) basis by which people end up in our criminal justice system. It has a lot to do with what zip code they're born into, the color of their skin, or like in the case of this film, how much of a threat they are to the status quo. We see the cops not really interested in stopping people who are you know, stealing or killing others, but they are totally focused on stopping a guy who they view might actually change what they view as the natural order of things. I think we see this in, in real life, you know, as I was just watching it, what it, what was what I was thinking of was Julian Assange. I mean, I think should be front and center of our news these days. You know, a guy who exposed war crimes and has been 
behind bars, persecuted ever since, while the people who committed those war crimes are living comfortable lives, haven't faced even an iota of accountability for those actions. And that's, I think, because as in this movie, the people in power are much more concerned with silencing and prosecuting the people who they view as a threat to the system more than really like maintaining a sense of of justice. Yeah, I thought the crime the depiction of crime was really interesting in this movie because in some ways they have streamlined the role of the police under capitalism by creating these zones where people are literally physically separated by the amount of wealth that they have or you know there there are workers in the uh, in New Greenwich for example we don't we don't have a great sense of of where they fit in but but yeah, real quick there, Davis, what's interesting is that the physical barrier is open. You just have to pay a month, you know? Right. So yeah. it's that thing where, no, there's no divide here. Anybody can move through anywhere in, in this society. Yeah, exactly. But by doing that, it kind of frees up the police or the timekeepers in the film to focus just on just on those system threatening crimes, right? They really don't have to concern themselves with poor people because that doesn't really pose a threat any longer to the the order of the system, right? Um, order can be maintained, you know, e- even with all of that constant unrest. Um, if anything, that unrest only serves to reinforce people's need to go and work in the factory. Which raises questions about the existence of the illicit economy in our society today. That is, is it a threat to the status quo? And therefore, doesn't it explain why it's allowed to exist? I don't want to use the, the cliche, the game is rigged, but I like that in the film. I think it's Henry. He basically says to Will, the game is rigged. And he's like, and what I would say is, you know, if we can, we can either say the game is rigged or we can say it in like what the way George Carlin used to say it, which is there's one big club and we ain't in it. <laughs> That's the best cliche, yeah. We ain't in the club. And so, because we're not in the club, the cards are stacked against us. And Henry makes it pretty explicit, but is it that different than the way this game is rigged against us? I mean, it seems there's a lot of parallels here, which I think also raise questions about the intentionality of the film, because there's certain phrases, certain uh, sayings that the film uses repeatedly, and in, in a way to try to like make sure we hear them, you know, they say them over and over again. <laughs> they have deep meanings that have a historical and theoretical tradition behind them. So when they say, is it stealing if it is already stolen? They say that I think two or three times in the film. And mm-hmm. when they said that, all I thought was, okay, so somebody here may understand something about the writings of Pierre Joseph Proudhon in the 1800s, who argued that property was robbery. Property was theft. And so here we have, is it stealing as if it's already stolen? And then we have that other line, for a few men to be immortal, many must die. And there I thought of Thomas Paine, who in the 1790s tells us to make one rich, many must be made poor. And he's saying that in the 1790s when Europe is acceleratingly moving in that direction to capitalism. And so I think there's a number of messages here that are pretty critical of the system. And we have a character telling Will, the system is rigged. And then our two main protagonists, end up becoming bank robbers, effectively. I mean, they're stealing time. And the film is wanting you to celebrate that they're robbing banks. They're like heroes. And I understand all the limitations of this film, but I can't think of too many films that legitimize bank robbing that say that 
we have the right to go into those banks and take that money and that heroify the people who are doing that. It, it's a very explicit Bonnie and Clyde story. You know, I mean, this might be a lack of cultural knowledge on my part. I don't really know the Bonnie and Clyde story. Was it romanticizing? Because I, I feel like, as John's saying, the message of the film on a, on a, from a general point of view isn't so much romanticizing it. It's saying that bank robbery is not really a robbery. It's just because it's actually just returning back time, resources, money to the people who they rightfully belong to. I see the symbolism of Bonnie and Clyde, but yet Bonnie and Clyde are doing this because they want to enrich themselves. Right. But I think in this film, they take that to that next radical level. Not only are they justifying the robbing of the banks, not for their own personal gain, because if we all recall, what do they do with all the time they steal? They go and they give it to working class people. It's really Bonnie and Clyde meets Robin Hood. <laughs> there it <Yeah>. is. <laughs> meets Marxism for dummies. <laughs> I think that's great. If this yeah. film was called A Marxist for Dummy, Bonnie and Clyde meets Robin Hood, <laughs> that's what's being depicted. Yeah. And in my opinion, that's pretty radical. That's a pretty radical message to send people. Yeah, I mean, I that almost makes me wonder if if the this movie got pitched and then got sabotaged a little bit or something. This this really that that's a <laughs> that description is much better than the actual film. This might be a good place to go to one aspect that makes it not radical. Because <laughs> I think you just put it beautifully and I agree with you, John, why it is. But one scene I just really did not care for was when he goes back to his friend's house and he says, you know, where's Borel, I think his name is. And the wife is in tears and says, he drank himself to death. You gave him a decade. And I felt like that just represented a, a you know, glaring issue with the film was that it really saw working class people as people in a lot of ways who can't be trusted with you know it was kind of agreeing with the antithesis of the film you know like we're supposed to accept that that guy just didn't know what to do with all that time he just killed himself drinking and yeah i think there are other points when we see the main characters not really interact but just be among what i would think of as the people you know just everyday people it's not one of oh these are uh, my brothers and sisters it's kind of one of their people I'm going to help because I have a more obligation to, but they aren't really that great. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, besides being one of the silliest scenes I've ever seen, I think that is a pretty rough depiction. I really felt that way because this issue of alcohol and drugs is one that comes up so often when we think of poverty in our society. The classic line I've heard all my life is, oh, don't give that homeless person money because he might spend it on something that won't help him, give him food instead. Mm -hmm. And it's just this idea of superiority that I don't think engenders solidarity. Being on the street, being someone in poverty in society is really hard. And if they want to alleviate some of that pain with a drink, with that dollar you give them, then, then so be it. That's not the worst thing in the world that's going to happen. What to me is the worst is, you know, this system that allows, requires so many people to live that way. The irony of it is when I've heard people say that, they're often heading to a bar. <laughs> right. <And> so, yeah. <laughs> so let me get this straight. So you've had an exhausting day. Yeah. You're fed up with the way you're being treated at work. You're fed up with the complexities and the hardships of this existence. So you can't wait to go to a bar and have a drink and relax. But the guy that's homeless, who's living on the street, who's barely surviving, 
he isn't in a place where he needs a drink. If anything, he needs a drink. <laughs> what is he supposed to do with whatever? Let's say you give him $5. Let's say you give him 10. Let's say you get, you give him 20, whatever you give him. What is he going to do with that? Make an investment, buy some stocks and bonds. I mean, it's absurd. You're talking about somebody as you're saying, <laughs> I'm hey, an just, entrepreneur. Yeah. Be yeah. Like, That's oh, what he's supposed to do with this $20. You know, it's like, they're supposed to buy like a, a, a tie and a resume. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what are we talking about? Like that person who's living that way doesn't have the right to just have a little bit of the same comfort that you're about to have with your friends. It's really offensive. And speaking about some of the limitations then of this film, since we jumped into that theme, see, I saw this film with Wanda and in the first 30 minutes, we both noticed that women were being portrayed as either mothers or prostitutes. Mm. That is, women are not the CEOs of this world. So they are not like Philip. Women are also not the trench coat wearing time cops in the film. That is, there was no female trench coat wearing time cop. There were women around, but they tended to have headsets on and they were like in the secretarial uh, yeah. road. So the only people in the superior position of sort of active agents in the time cop world were men. And then when you look on the street in the first 30 minutes, you have Will's mother, Rachel, who is his motherly figure. And then you have a prostitute who tries to solicit Killian Murphy, the timekeeper. And I'm not criticizing sex workers in any way. But what I am saying is this film is depicting women as either mothers or sex workers in the first like 30 to 40 minutes. And then the main female protagonist begins as a damsel in distress and then kind of becomes an active agent when they start robbing the banks together. But I would say for a film that I'm implying is in tune with Pierre Joseph Proudhon, is in tune with Tom Paine, is in tune with the entire rich literature that talks about property and exploitation and money, etc. It seems like they're not in tune with Mary Wollstonecraft. It seems like they're not in tune with the literature from the 1700s forward that deals with women and agency and subjugation and misogyny. Like, I think you can depict women in a more empowering way. And that, that stood out to Wanda. And it really stood out to me as that I thought the film could do a better job of that. I mean, it even really stands out with Sylvia, who is ostensibly a protagonist, but she was literally kidnapped to begin their time together. And she basically is a, a total passenger. You know, she does eventually get on board. And I guess she maybe comes up with the idea of how to rob the, the banks. I, I, I'm a little bit confused about, the... I'm a little bit confused about how they robbed six banks in a week by driving a truck through the front. You're asking um, too many questions. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're thinking too much here. Stop it. <laughs> You should be asking more questions about the absurd society we live in in real life. That's right, Gabe. Gabe <laughs> listen to Gabe. What Gabe just says that's what we. That's what it is. Um, yeah, I, I'm a little confused, but but yeah, it, it, the, the point is Sylvia is. It, I mean, very much fits within that dynamic. You know, um, she's not yet a mother, and she doesn't have to be a prostitute, but she isn't really yet playing any active role in the film. I mean, since we started talking about criticisms, I'm curious, is there, I mean, because ultimately like what I, my joke right now about you're thinking too much, there's truth to that, right? That the film is, you're not supposed to, this is not supposed to be in some ways a realistic portrait. Right. It's very silly. Yeah. It, it's meant to be silly. like when we see them robbing banks, it's like there, <laughs> there are no cops around, nobody's shooting at them. I mean, they could just like, they're just robbing one bank after another. Right. I mean, they, at one point they literally, let's be real. At one point they literally flip 
a like yeah. Aston Martin oh. convertible open air <laughs> down into a, a down into a like man-made river bank and survive somehow. Yeah. So yeah. I I was wondering what it like where he got his Jason Bourne abilities because they said <laughs> in the beginning that he was a fighter like his dad was a fighter but then when they showed what fighting actually is it's like an arm wrestle <laughs> it's like I, a I wrist know, twist yeah. it's yeah. a wrist twist <laughs> oh yeah hold on yeah, the yeah. Idea, you twist the wrist <laughs> the idea that you lose all the strength in your arm when you look at someone else's arm right, absolutely right. killed me he's like you just have to get all the way down and once they look at your arm you twist them that's when you go <laughs> Once again, you guys are asking too many questions here. You're both thinking way too much. That's not how this is supposed to work. You're supposed to just remember the lines. Yeah. For a few to be immortal, many must die. Is it stealing as if it already stolen? Remember right. those lines. Like it said a lot. Well, no, it, in a way, it really is like if you had someone that you want to understand these concepts about our economic and social system we live under, but only understands those via rep- repetition and just most overt metaphor ever, then this this is the film for them. I think that's a great point, right? Because it raises a question of, can a film like this be used to politically raise questions in a person? So if I know somebody out there that's a big JT fan, and I say, look, have you seen In Time? And they say, no. And I say, you know, check that out. It's right now trending on Prime. And they watch it. Can I say to them the next time I see them? So I have a question for you. What do you really think is the difference between the way money operates in our society and the way time is operating in that society? Like, what's the real difference? And then we can talk about that. And is there something there? Is there, can this film be used as a, as a political tool? I think it is in that way, in a, in a way to start a discussion with other people. Is, I feel like it almost talks down too much for it to be like something that you kind of just watch on your own and you learn something. But I think that like as a conversation starter, it really works. Like I was thinking about this, am I going to watch this movie again? And I don't think I'm going to watch it just on my own ever again. But I do think, like you said, if I know someone who this might be there, <laughs> kind of the genre they're into or the actors that, that they like, then this would be something that I would watch with a group or recommend to a group with the idea that I get to talk with them about it afterwards. What do you think of that, Davis? I think one thing that hurts its utility maybe in education is the way that it depicts the elites and their view of the system. Now, we, we get a little bit of a sense of, of how they exploit workers. Like we were talking about with the factory job before and uh, we get a sense that Sylvia's dad seems to make most of his money through we're essentially like payday loan loan shark yeah payday loan kind of places high interest rate loans I'd say he's a banker (laughs) Um, right yeah but I think there is kind of a limit like I was saying to the utility because basically it, it doesn't seem to me to really explain much about the workings of capitalism at the level of capital. What it speaks to more is the experience of working class people under capitalism. I don't know, actually, as I say that, I kind of wonder if if that is true. I mean, because we were talking about the essential features of capitalism and market compulsion, you know, basically the idea that everyone has to participate in the market, that even, even the elites, even wealthy people, derive their subsistence from the market. Now, obviously they have a much easier time of it and their wealth means that it's never a question of whether or not they will be able to 
but everybody participates in the market. And, you know, and maybe that point is made even more clear in this, where they too have tickers on their arms. So maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe that actually, maybe I've talked myself <laughs> I, into um, yeah, that, I, that, that that is actually a better representation. <laughs> I love watching you talk yourself into that. Um, I, I guess I just think I, I, I don't love the idea of like a cadre of people even higher than Sylvia's father who are pulling the strings. I, that, that stuff is, is sort of weak to me in terms of explanatory power. In, in terms of the other point you made though, Davis, I think that so important, one that often gets underestimated. I think we often underestimate the degree to which everyone does have to participate in this market. And we say like Jeff Bezos could eliminate homelessness with just, you know, this percentage of his wealth. And like, obviously he could. And the reason he doesn't is probably because he's a greedy sociopath. But the general rule (laughs) that I'm trying to explain is that, you know, the reason we don't see these things isn't so much because of an individual feeling, but it's because of this system that makes it so if you even draw back one step in your wealth accumulation, it's a eat or be eaten world. Your, your competition will run you out of business and now you're penniless, right? It's legally required by the chief executive officer of a corporation to increase the profit for his shareholders. Like that is a legal obligation in our system. So it really isn't a matter of the CEO of Amazon just being too greedy. It's a matter of what economically he has to do. And if we're going to eliminate the injustice that this breeds, we're going to have to get at that root systemic cause of it. I actually, for this reason, really liked the part with Henry, this character who shows up in Dayton. Um, I thought he was actually kind of interesting because, you know, he's explaining to Will that he's lived a long life and he says, we want to die. And I, I do think there's something there where he's, he's kind of talking about something innate in, in people that, that's apart from this economic uh, metaphor. But I also think that that is an interesting idea coming from this person who he doesn't just transfer the money off of his wrist and die in his bed in New Greenwich, right? He chooses to go to Dayton. And I interpreted that basically, you know, one of, one of my mantras is that I want to liberate people from their wealth. I think wealth is very oppressive. I think it's brutal on the human psyche to know that all of these other people are suffering while you aren't, you know? I, I think that's really rough on people. I I think that that is not a good way to live either. Obviously, it's better um, than than the very real material challenges. Sleeping on the street. Right. I'm I'm not making any kind of um, false equivalency here. Totally. Um, But I don't think that it's a good way to live. I I think that it's a a huge burden on people to know because, because everybody knows. Sylvia says at one point, just like... It was a a line that mirrored really closely, actually, the line from Children of Men, where he says, like, how do you how do you deal with this? And she says, we just we just don't look, you know, we just look away. We don't we don't see you. But no matter how much they choose not to look, they know that they're not looking. Right. And and I think that there is I, I think that this does give a sense of the weight of knowing 
that you have so much when other people have so little. I wonder if we should contrast the way Sylvia wanting to look away from the brutality of their world in comparison to the way her father legitimizes it. Because I think like you, Davis, I thought it should have been done in a more sophisticated way. You don't want to just drop social Darwinism into the conversation. But as I've expressed earlier, I think this film is dropping all sorts of theoretical phrases mm -hmm. so that when I heard the father give his speech, his sort of elite person speech at the end, while I understand that it could have been done in a more sophisticated way, to me, it, it was explaining the flip side of the way she's seeing the brutality that defines their way of life, which is there's a natural order to things. Naturalizing it. And some of us just are in our positions because we have the natural abilities and gifts to be here. And some of us lack those natural abilities and gifts, and therefore they're where they are. And so you can do all that you want to try to create an egalitarian society, but you're not really going to undo this natural hierarchy that is innately in us all that exists. And when I heard him say that, I thought to myself, Actually, I think a lot of elites think that way. I think a lot of elites yeah. can rationalize the brutality of our society by saying they have talents and abilities that have allowed them to rise. And these other people lack those talents and abilities. And on that point, the literature that I've read that looks at the intellectual side of the turn to neoliberalism in the 1970s shows that what numerous neoliberal intellectuals were concerned with was the emphasis and the push for equality that had been engendered by the social movements of the 1960s. And so they could actually debate civil rights. They could debate all kinds of things. But what was so problematic to so many neoliberal intellectuals was the idea that we all are innately equal, that we're all equal. That is, yeah. from their perspective, that argument made them feel then what Sylvia's feeling. That is, if you feel the game is rigged, then you don't deserve to have the privileges that you have. It's not right. And so what these intellectuals fought constantly against was any kind of idea, any kind of ideology that would imply that we're all innately equal. They couldn't stand that. That's too dangerous. It's what you're saying. It forces them to confront the society in a different way. And they don't want to have to do that. I think I read even more revolutionary messaging in the sense that, what's his name? The, the banker knows that revolution isn't a singular event, that it's a process that entails a counter-revolution. So even though that we're not, you know, really seeing this, you know, that is what happens. You can't just redistribute wealth one time and have a more egalitarian society. The people who were well off beforehand will organize to try to get those privileges back have to keep fighting for what was gained because it can quickly be taken back as we've seen in revolutions that have played out in history. I definitely hear where Davis is coming from that maybe that's reading too much uh, Marxist theory into this uh, <laughs> Justin Timberlake film. <laughs> I did get kind of a kick out of the fact that, you know, the, the like main takeaway line from, or like one of the most repeated lines from the social network, uh, which was one year before this movie was, you know, like when, Justin Timberlake's character is like, you know, it's cool, not a million dollars. You know, it's cool is a billion dollars, right? Right. And then in yeah, this movie, yeah. they're like, you know, it would do, you know, it would really wreck the system a million hours. A million, a million years. A million yeah. years. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't really know uh, about the conversion rate, but I don't, I don't think a million years is going to be quite enough when they, when they make the time. But, um, you brought up that it was a year before Social Network. I remember Social Network coming out. This movie just totally misread my radar. I'd never even 
I didn't know of its existence before this. So you guys have any final comments that you want to conclude on? Yeah, I, I do. Is it stealing as if it already stolen? Right. <laughs> there we go. I needed to say, I wanted to say it as many times as you said it in the movie, because I want everybody yeah. to walk away from this pod yeah. asking themselves, what? what is theft? What yeah. is property? Hmm. Who is Pierre Joseph Proudhon? Right. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of part of, it, of an idea from Captain Fantastic, what you were talking about last week, this repetition of power to the people, stick it to the man. <laughs> so that's your final thought, John. My final thought is power to the people, stick it to the man. Have you ever heard of Japanese jazz? <laughs> Since I've raised the bar so high, I've been, and I, you know, it's been some cool music because you haven't heard, you know, crowd rock in a long time. When was the last time you heard Japanese jazz? Did you know there was Japanese jazz? You probably thought it was Japanese karaoke. No, there is Japanese jazz, and one of the hottest Japanese jazz groups is called Pistol Jazz. Which is kind of what attracted me to, you know. I come across a name like that, I said, come on, I gotta listen to these guys' music. Pistol Jazz.